Welcome to the final week of our series through the book of James. I know you've heard us explain this pretty much at the beginning of every single one of these sermons, so why stop now? We're here at the end. We've called this series How Faith Works because the book of James is really like a how-to guide for living out our faith in the trenches of ordinary, everyday life. So what we've done is we've spent the last 11 weeks going through the book and talking about everything from how to handle trials and conflict to how to use our resources and pray powerfully and a whole lot of things in between. And so now our final question here at the end is how does James take all those different threads, tie them together, and leave us with a conclusion that makes an impact that we won't forget? And and you might think with everything that James has done throughout his letter that it's going to take a lot of space to do that but he actually manages it with just two verses. So we're going to go ahead and read those on the front end, and they're going to be the verses that we're focusing on for the rest of our time together. We're in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. Here's what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When James speaks there of wandering from the truth of Christianity, the the picture he's painting is a really common one used throughout the Bible. It's It's the picture of the life of faith as a path or as a journey. And James ends his book with that kind of imagery to remind us what he's really been hammering throughout his entire letter, that genuine faith in Christ is not merely a single decision we make or a set of ideas we agree with or rituals that we practice. It is an entire way of life. It's a very specific path. It's a journey with a very specific destination. And this world is filled with all kinds of obstacles and distractions that would try to make us leave the path. And James, throughout his book, has talked about a lot of those things. He's talked about trials, temptations to sin, hardships of poverty, conflict with other people, the false security of riches, persecution, sickness, suffering, and we could keep going. But the entire point of James's letter, and the reason that he ends by talking about wondering, is to teach us when faced with those obstacles and distractions, how to stay on the path and finish the journey. So that's really going to be the title for this final teaching. And we're going to look at three big truths that we can draw out from James 5, 19 through 20 that we need to understand and practice if indeed we're going to stay on the path and finish the journey. So let's just jump right in with my first big idea today I want to share with you. I'm calling it this, we are all prone to wonder. Now, many of you probably recognize that phrase. I actually took it from the old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We've we've sung it here at church before. In the original version, written in 1758, the fourth verse says this, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I was looking up the history of this song just to prepare for this teaching, and I was actually surprised to find that there are a number of churches today that have changed the wording of that specific verse to get rid of any hint of wondering. And the only reason I could think that they would do that is the same reason that probably a lot of us don't want to sing and confess that our hearts are prone to wonder. Who wants to say that? I mean, really, is our salvation really that insecure? Are we really all prone to wonder? Can we really all sing that verse? And according to James 5.19, the answer is yes. And I believe that, that understanding that truth about ourselves is key to staying on the path and finishing the journey. So let's look at, at verse 19 again, just the first half of it, and we'll dig into it a little bit. Here's what he says again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders 
from the truth. So before we get too far, we need to figure out what James is saying there when he talks about the truth. If we, if we just take that phrase at face value, at the very least, he has to mean the core teachings about our faith that are true, that are accurate, that are agreed upon. These would be things like the virgin birth of Jesus as a human, uh, his fully divine nature as God, his substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his literal resurrection. We could go on and on and on. So in one sense, to wander from the faith would be to abandon Orthodox Christian teaching for either heresy on the one hand or outright belief on the other. However, it's clear from the rest of James and the rest of the New Testament that this phrase, the truth, has to mean more than just doctrines we believe with our minds. Pastor Ryan actually preached an entire sermon on this just a few weeks ago. Back in chapter 2 of James, he spills a whole lot of ink telling us that genuine faith, what we believe, can never be separated from works, how we live. And he doesn't mince any words when he ends that entire discussion in chapter 2 with this famous line in verse 26. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith in the New Testament sense of the word isn't just about believing all the right doctrines. That's just the foundation. It's about taking those doctrines into our hearts so that we trust God enough to follow and obey him. In the same way, when James uses this phrase, the truth, he's not talking about merely a package of things that we agree are factual and correct. He's talking about an entire way of life. And that's why the Apostle John, if you jump over to his letter in 1 John 1, 6, he speaks not of believing the truth. That's what we'd expect him to say. He speaks about practicing the truth, about it's something we do. So if you come back to James 5, 19, to wander from the truth then isn't merely to stop believing all the right things. It's also to stop living the right way. And each of those two things usually feeds off of each other and leads to the other. Here's what I mean by that. Two scenarios here. Nine times out of ten, uh, when a church or an individual stops believing in some core teaching of Christianity, it's not long before that person or that church also begins to set aside some of the biblical commands about morality, about how they should live. And, and really, the logic behind that is clear. If this biblical teaching about Jesus, this doctrine, if it's not true... Well, then the whole foundation is flawed, and I can't trust any of the rest of the Bible, including the moral teaching about what's right, what's wrong, and how I should live. So that's one way it could work to wander from the truth. You eventually wander morally, but it can also work in reverse. Here, here's a scenario for you to think about. When, when a believer, when somebody that believes in Jesus, believes in the Bible, when they begin to wander away morally, in other words, when they start doing things repeatedly that they know from the Bible are wrong and displeasing to God, and I'm about to speak from experience, it becomes very tempting at that point to excuse our conscience by just rejecting the truth about God in general. We don't say this part out loud, but implicitly the thought process goes like this. I know that God says this is wrong in his word, but I really don't want it to be wrong. So maybe, maybe we translated those words wrong, or maybe that specific part of the Bible, maybe that wasn't really inspired by God. Or maybe, if we continue this thought process, maybe God isn't even who the Bible says he is. Maybe the truth is, is, is really just my truth and your truth. And, and maybe what, what really matters is not believing in the true God, but believing in my true self. That's the slippery slope that that leads to. And both of those scenarios are what it looks like to wander away from the truth. God has laid out a straight and narrow path. 
that is paved with both the doctrines we should believe and on top of that, the moral lives that we should lead. So you really can't depart from the one without eventually also departing from the other to some degree. And in a minute, we'll talk about just how potentially dangerous and destructive that is. But to end this first big idea, we need to get back to the, to the first thing that I was talking about and ask the question, well, who is the kind of person who could potentially wander from the truth like that? Who really is prone to wonder? And again, James 5.19 gives us the answer. I'm going to read that first half of it again, and I'm going to point out a couple things. Here's what he says one more time. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. Notice two descriptors about the person who might wander from the truth. First, James said, my brothers. In the original Greek, like a lot of non-English languages today, that, that masculine plural word brothers was actually meant to encompass both men and women. In English, we would literally translate that brothers and sisters. So, so James is speaking here to his brothers and sisters in Christ, not unbelievers, Christians. But you, you might say, okay, surely not all Christians though. Notice the second descriptor. He says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. Not, not just the weak or the immature or the suffering. He says, any Christian, even the longtime believer, the strong in faith, the elder, the pastor, the smiling greeter, the sweet grandmother, the one that fasts once a week, reads their Bible three times a day, prays at the end of every night. James's point is, as the song says, we are all prone to wonder. It could be any one of us, including myself. Sometimes people make a big deal about how the book of James and all the letters that Paul wrote don't, you know, they don't line up. They disagree with each other, which is not true. Pastor Ryan's talked about that. David's talked about that. Um, but we actually see it in this very passage. They agree with each other. The Apostle Paul wrote a passage very similar to the one we're looking at in James today over in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 3. I just want you to, to hear these, hear how similar they are, but also they're going to shed some light on what James is saying. So here's what Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, which is basically what James just told us in verses 19 and 20. Bring back the one who has wandered from the truth. But now listen to what Paul says next. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul says, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritually mature and stable enough to restore someone who isn't, you need to keep watch on yourself too. Why? Paul says, because you're not something. You're nothing. To reach back to my 90s childhood, what he's saying is you're not all that and a bag of chips. Yes, you are a righteous saint in God's eyes, and yes, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, but on this side of eternity, you and I still inhabit this sinful flesh. We still live in an evil world ruled by the prince of evil, and because of all that, all of our hearts are still prone to wonder. In 2019, there was a study released. It was quoted in um, National Geographic magazine. You can look it up. It's called Safe and Found. And it, it analyzed over 100 stories of lost hikers who were rescued alive. And this is going to come as no surprise. They found that the number one reason people got lost, to quote the study, is that they wandered off trail. 
But what really caught my eye, when you go to the main web page of this study, right above that statistic I just quoted, there's another quote from one of the hikers that they rescued. And here's, here's what he said. One mistake people make is thinking nothing can go wrong. In other words, none of those people really thought they were the type of person that would wander away and get lost. Their, their thought was, it happens to others, but it would never happen to me. And that lack of self-awareness was their first step in the wrong direction. And the same goes for us spiritually. If we're going to avoid wandering from the path so that we can finish the journey, the first thing we have to do is understand ourselves properly. Don't ever underestimate your ability to make a mess of your life. Don't ever think in this life that you finally arrived at perfection. As Paul said, don't think too highly of yourself. All of us are prone to wonder. We need to understand that truth so that we don't become complacent, so that we can continually, as Paul says, keep watch on ourselves. So having said all that, the next most logical question would be, well, well if we're all prone to wonder, then, then what do I do if I do wonder? And the short and the obvious answer is, well, get back on the path. But obviously, that's too simplistic. It's not always that simple, and that brings us to our second big idea that I want to share with you today, and it's this. Sometimes we can't make it back on our own. We spent the last few minutes focusing on the first half of verse 19. Now I want to look at the whole thing. Let me say it to you again. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Notice James didn't say if anybody wanders from the truth and they come back on their own, he says, and someone brings him back. In other words, sometimes we can wander away so far or for so long or be so hurt or so confused or so angry or so weak that we just can't make it back on our own. We need someone else to come find us and bring us back to the path. And that sobering truth leads us to, to two big action items that we can draw out from that and put into practice in our lives right now. And it's actually the same two things we see when lost hikers are rescued. In the same study I just quoted a minute ago, a survival expert named Andrew Harrington said that the number one mistake he sees when people choose to hike a trail is lack of preparation. That probably comes as no surprise as well. One of the first things he mentions, if you're going to be well prepared in case you get lost and you need someone to come find you, here's what he says to do. Leave a trip plan and check-in time with two trusted people, which leads me to our first action item here, which is check-in with trusted people. If we all understand, which I hope we do now, that we're all the type of people prone to wonder, and we want to make sure that we're prepared in case we do wonder and we need somebody to find us and bring us back, then we need to make sure we are regularly checking in with trusted people. I want to say that more bluntly. You and I need to be deeply connected to other brothers and sisters in Christ in the community of a local church. If, if you or I, if, if we go for a hike and we decide we're not going to tell anybody, and while we're out there, we're not going to check in with anybody, if we get lost, it will be nearly impossible for people to know where you are so they can come find you. In the same way, if we don't have a church community with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that we regularly check in with, if, if we're not regularly allowing people to know how our journey is going through confession of sin, through prayer, through accountability, then how can anybody know if we've wandered away and become lost. So that's the first one. We need to check in with trusted people. 
We, we, we're going to put that into practice in case we're the ones who wander away. The second action item is actually all about preparing, not in case we're the ones that wander away, but in case we're the ones that are doing the rescuing. If you've ever known someone who got lost and got rescued, or maybe obviously we've probably all heard news stories about this, it almost always ends the same way. After tips from family and friends, the local authorities put together this search and rescue team. And that search and rescue team is almost always made up of people, local people, who know the path and know the area around it extremely well. And in the same way, if we want to be the someone that James speaks of in verse 19 that's able to bring back another person from wondering, here's our second action item. We need to know the path and the area around it. As Christians, we rightly believe that we should study God's Word, pray, attend church services, join small groups, all for our individual spiritual growth. And that's true, 100%. But it's also equally true that we should desire to grow spiritually, not simply for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom we love and whom we cherish. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul over in Philippians chapter 2, here's what he says in verses 3 through 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look out for each other. So, so here's what this means. When, when you don't feel like getting up on a Sunday morning, or you're just too tired to pray, or studying the Bible just seems so intimidating and exhausting. First, Remember, if that happens, you're just a normal Christian. Happens to me too. We don't earn God's love by our performance. However, having said that, when we're tempted to become slack or complacent in our spiritual growth, remember that our efforts won't just benefit us, they will benefit our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to remember that there are people in this room right now, there are people listening online that need you to know the path and need you to make progress on the path so that you can help them stay on it and finish the journey. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Anthony, haven't you guys stood up there on the stage and, and, and told us that it's Jesus who keeps us on the path, and it's Jesus who sees us through to the end? Yes, we have. Well, Anthony, you just said that it's the church that keeps us on the path, and, and it's the church that sees us through to the end. Yes, I did. So which one is it? Is it Jesus or is it the church? And the answer is, you've been trained well. The answer is Yes. Yes, it's both. What, what does the New Testament call the church? It calls the church the body of Christ. Your brothers and sisters, this is by God's design, are the hands and feet of Jesus for you. Through them, through God's Spirit in them, Jesus himself comes alongside of you and steers you in the right direction and keeps you on the path. And, and that's why this, this popular idea I hear from time to time, that, that I can follow Jesus without being part of the church, ultimately makes zero since to reject the church is to reject Jesus' own body working on your behalf. And with all the obstacles and distractions and dangers that we're going to encounter in this life, you and I will not stay on this path of truth and finish the journey unless we link up with a group of fellow travelers who know the way and love us enough to walk with us to the end. So if we want to stay on the path, if we want to finish the journey, we need to know that sometimes we can't make it back on our own. And that's why we need the church, and that's why we need to be the church. But all this talk about 
this path of Christianity really begs the ultimate question, which is, what's so great about this path in the first place? Why would I want to walk it? Or if I walk it and wander away, why would I ever want to return? And that brings me to our final big idea today, and it's this. This path leads to love and life. So let's look at the final verse now in the book of James. Chapter 5, verse 20. Here's what he says. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what I want to do is start at the end of that verse and we'll work our way backwards. James says there at the end that if we bring somebody back who has wandered from the truth, we will cover a multitude of sins. Now, if you've been around Christianity for even a minute, you're probably scratching your head. I thought Jesus was the only one who covered our sins. So, so what is James talking about here? It's possible that James just simply means what Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament teaches us, that the kind of faith that truly saves, the kind that truly covers our sins, is a faith that endures to the end. I'm just quoting Jesus there. If, so, so here's how we would put this in terms of this path we're talking about. If we don't stay on the path of faith in Jesus, if we don't endure in following him all the way to the end, then that will be proof that our faith was never genuine. It was not the kind of faith that saves. So then, if, if we help someone to return back to the path, as verse 20 says, back to following Jesus, their return to the path will be evidence that their faith was genuine and their sins are indeed covered by Jesus. That's 100% true. And James probably means that on some level, but I actually think he's saying something else here. This phrase he uses, cover a multitude of sins, it only appears in one other place in the entire Bible in a letter written by Peter. And both Peter and James knew Jesus personally when he lived on this earth, actually heard him speak, listened to him, talked to him. And that fact, along with the fact that both of those men use this exact same unique phrase, writing from two different places at two different times, all of that has led some scholars to believe that when they use that phrase, they're actually quoting something they heard Jesus say. At the very least, it probably means that they actually mean the same thing when they use that phrase. So what I want to do is hop over to 1 Peter 4.8. Let's see how Peter uses this phrase, and I think it's going to shed some light on what James means as well. So here's what Peter says. 1 Peter 4.8, speaking to the church, speaking to Christians, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and here it is, since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, when Peter uses this phrase, he isn't mainly talking about Jesus taking away our sins. He's talking about the church or Christians covering each other's sins in love. In other words, what he's talking about, him and James, they're talking about the kind of love that forgives and welcomes people back into the family as though they had never left. And I think one of the most beautiful pictures of this in the entire Bible is actually the story of Peter that Pastor Ryan shared last week. I just want to share it with you from a, from a different angle this morning. In the moment when Jesus needed Peter most, Peter denied him and ran away. But something we also don't think about is that in that moment, Peter also was supposed to be a leader and an example for his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he failed them too. But here's what's surprising. After Jesus ascended to heaven, what we don't find, what we would expect to find, but we don't find, is Peter on the outside looking in. 
We don't find Peter shunned or humiliated or on some sort of probation period to prove his repentance. Here's what we do find. We find Peter standing up as a leader among the brothers and sisters he had failed to proclaim the Jesus that he had denied. In their love, this is amazing to me, in their love, following the example of their recently risen Savior, that first Christian church had covered over Peter's multitude of sins and welcomed him back into the family as though he had never left. And that's what I mean when I say the Christian path is a path that leads to love. And I'm going to make an understatement here. That's a path that our culture so desperately needs right now. Earlier this year, um, the Atlantic Magazine, I don't know if you've ever read the Atlantic Magazine. It's a secular magazine, not exactly a bastion of Christian thought. And that's why it surprised me when they ran this article in February with this headline. Here's what it said. Have we forgotten how to forgive? And I want you to just listen to a snippet of what this non-Christian author wrote and see if it resonates with you. Here's what he said. A society that cannot forget and cannot forgive is one that cannot function. A community in which people cannot set aside their grievances is one that will be forever hostage to them. And a person who's provided no path to growth and change is one who will never reach their potential. And now listen and see if you've experienced this. As a society, especially online, we increasingly expect less and less of each other, and we compete to fulfill each other's most mediocre expectations. So much of our online discourse revolves around assuming the worst of people, reducing them to their lowest moment or tweet, and foreclosing the possibility that anyone can become better. And here's how he ends. But ask yourself, does anyone really want to live like this? Does anyone want to be treated like this? End quote. And those are rhetorical questions because the answer is obvious. Of course not. Nobody wants to live like that. And we, as the church, should show the way forward for our weary world. Listen, I'm not naive. We don't, we don't practice this perfectly, and we're always, always going to need to repent and do better. That's what Christianity is all about. But the Christian path should be full of fellow travelers who have had their sins covered and therefore are ready to welcome with open arms and sin-covering love anybody that wants to begin the journey with us or return after having wandered away because the Christian path leads to that kind of love. But that's not all James says in verse 20. Remember, we're working our way backwards. If we get to the beginning of the verse, we see he says, if we rescue someone from wandering, we will save their soul from death, from spiritual death, which means that if we stay on the path, we will find the opposite of that, which is life. The Christian journey is the only path that offers real and lasting life. Now, I realize that's a very exclusive statement in a very inclusive world, which is not a popular thing to say. So the question is, why is that the case? Why can't we, according to Christianity, why can't we find real and lasting life on some other path, some other belief system, some other way of life? Why not? What what does Christianity have to say to that? So I'm going to give you an attempt at an answer here. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, what we find is that, that when God creates the first humans, he does, he does so very differently than the way he created everything else. 
when he created that first man, he didn't speak him into existence like he did everything else. The Bible says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then, after giving that first man a companion, God gave them both access to what he called the tree of life so that they could eat from it and live forever in perfect, joyful, loving relationship with God and with each other. So here's what that means. God, from the very beginning of the Bible, was the source and the sustainer of human life. Apart from him, there is no such thing as real life. But if you keep reading the story, what happens is those first humans decided that they would rebel against this God who had created him. They sinned by taking fruit from a forbidden tree. And when they did that, what they were doing was rejecting him as their true source and sustainer. What they were basically saying without using words is that we know better and we can trust ourselves better than the God who made us. And so by their sin, they forfeit their access to the tree of life and a perfect relationship with God and with each other. And ever since that day, we have been constantly looking to regain that life, that health, joy, love, hope, satisfaction, meaning. We've been looking for life in all the wrong places. But God, in his great love and mercy, wasn't content to just let us keep running away from him, plunging over the cliff of our own pride and selfishness. So what he did is he sent his own son to pave the path back to him, back to his presence, back to life. And that's why John, in the first chapter of his gospel, describes Jesus' coming like this. He says, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what we celebrate here during this Christmas season, the Son of God, the source of life, coming to restore to us the life we were always meant to have. But what the gospel tells us is paving this path came at a great cost. Remember, it was our proud rebellion. It was our sin that cut us off from the tree of life in the first place. We ate from a forbidden tree, and we became cursed with death and cut off from the tree of life. So Jesus hung on a tree to take that curse on himself so we could have access to the tree of life once more. He forfeit his own life so that we could have ours back. And now what he does through his spirit is he calls men and women everywhere to come and to trust him, trust what he accomplished, accomplished and follow him on the path to what he called abundant, overflowing life. Now, what all that means is that wandering from the truth, as James talks about, is not merely to abandon true beliefs or to abandon true morals. It is to abandon the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, the only person who knows all there is to know about you and yet still loved you enough, he was literally dying to be with you. If we abandon that person, as Peter once said long ago, then to whom shall we go? Only he has the words of eternal life. That's how James ends his letter. What I want to do is take everything we just talked about and just speak specifically now to, do, to two groups of people as I come to an end. First, I want to speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ who maybe you're here in this room, you're listening online, and you are still on the path. You are stable, you are steady, you are making progress. And what I say to that is praise God for your faith and your consistency. But what I would also tell you is to remember that you are still prone to wonders. So don't Think too highly of yourself. Think 
highly of Jesus. And continue to surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ that you trust enough to hold you accountable. And don't grow complacent. Continue to commit yourself to growing in your faith and understanding and obedience so you're always ready and willing to come to the rescue of a brother or sister who maybe has wandered away. And when someone does indeed return to the path, even if their wandering may have hurt you or hurt people you love, remember how Christ and His love covered your sins and be ready, therefore, to cover theirs and welcome them with open arms. But lastly, I want to speak to those of you who aren't on this Christian path. Maybe you've never started it, you're still skeptical about it. Maybe you walked it for a while and you've wandered away. If that's you, all I want to do here at the end is share a quick story with you to consider. Just, I would ask you to just keep an open mind and listen to this story, and I'll go ahead and have the worship team come up. You're probably not familiar with the name Sam Kennison. He's been largely forgotten today, but back in the 1980s, early 1990s, Sam was a, a rising star in the comedy world, in the stand-up comedy world. However, stand-up comedy was not Sam's first career of choice. He actually began his young adult life as a Pentecostal holy roller pastor. And I can say it that way because I grew up as a holy roller as well. Sadly, his ministry was never very successful in his own eyes. And, and, and when his short marriage ended in divorce, Sam actually not only walked away from the ministry, he walked away from his faith in Christ. But at that point, he had no career. All he had done was pastor. So he decided he was going to try his hand at stand-up comedy. And after kind of tinkering with it and figuring it out, he finally landed on this routine and persona that people fell in love with. And if you've ever seen any of Sam Kennison's stand-up comedy, and I don't necessarily recommend you go look at it, but he, he was really well known for doing this primal screaming, which sounds weird to us, but people loved it. But also, beyond that, his routine was also very vulgar, very mean-spirited, and at times... On public television in front of millions of people, he often made a mockery of the faith he used to profess. Not only that, but this routine was also accompanied by the drug, sex, and alcohol, which was, you know, so typical of that celebrity world. But this new path he was on seemed to lead to more fun and more success than that Christian path he had left had ever led to. He was making appearances on major late-night shows. He was hosting Saturday Night Live. His tours were booked up. He was even starting to break into Hollywood with some minor acting roles. The money was flowing. People were worshiping him. Women were fawning over him. But what I think Sam eventually learned, like a lot of celebrities, is that appearances can be deceiving. He learned that money and fame and pleasure are not the path of true love and true life. At best, they can only provide deceptive and dark shadows of the real things. And here's why I say that. About a decade into his comedy career, Sam actually told his brother, which, which was also his manager, that he wanted to return to the ministry. And he even set a target date for May of 1992. Remember that date. So by all accounts, it looked like, you know, Sam had, had come to realize he had wandered from the path and, and, he, and he wanted to find his way back. He was starting to find his way back. Unfortunately, we never got to see the fruit of that decision because not long after that conversation, Sam was driving to a sold-out show in Nevada when a pickup truck crossed the center line, hit his car head-on, killed him. And it was April the 10th, 1992. And Sam Kennison was 38 years old. Now, you're probably thinking, Anthony, are you trying to manipulate me with one of those no-one-is-promised-tomorrow speeches? Listen, 
Call it what you want. Try to avoid it all you want. The plain truth is that no one is promised tomorrow. James told us back in chapter 4 that our lives are just a vapor, gone as quickly as a cold breath on a winter's morning. I work at a funeral home. I see this all the time in real life. I'm talking about the, the man who just retired and he's looking forward to traveling with his wife and he dies of a heart attack doing yard work. I'm talking about the single lady in her 30s working out at the gym. She collapsed and never got back up. Or the woman in her 40s with a picture-perfect career, picture-perfect family taken away by cancer. And I could go on and on. In Psalm 90, Moses prays to God and he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Well, what is that wisdom? Here it is. Don't be like Sam Kinison. Don't let circumstances or people that let you down or hurt you cause you to abandon the one who will never let you down and never hurt you. Life is too short. Don't waste it wandering around looking for life and love in all the wrong places. You might find passing shadows, but there's only one path where you'll find the real things. And I'm not going to lie to you. It's not always an easy path. It can be tiring and dangerous and painful. But the one who paved the path will walk with you and give you true life and true love, and he will see you through to the end where that life and that love will overflow forever and ever. And so I started this teaching with an old hymn. I think it would be fitting to end with another and as I, as I quote these words to you, if you're not on the path, if you've wandered from the path, I want you to hear these words because they are the words of the gospel to you. It says this, softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? And then the chorus says, come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner come home. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, for anyone in this room that has wandered from the path or maybe they've never started it, I'm just asking that by your spirit, you would visit them and tell them how much you love them and take their hand and bring them to the path. When I hear the words of that song and I, I hear James 5, 19 through 20, the, the picture I see in my mind is, is, that, is that parable that Jesus told of that prodigal son that ran away carrying nothing for his father. And that father stood at the end of the road every day looking and watching and waiting for his son to return. And when he saw him on the horizon, he didn't wait for him to make it to him. He ran to meet him. God, I pray that people in this room today would know that they don't have to be afraid to come home. They don't have, they're not coming to a, a father that's going to chastise them and scold them and remind them of all the wrong they've done. They're coming to a father who will run to meet them at the first sign of their return. All because Jesus Christ laid down his life so that we can have ours back 
bring people home. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be the kind of people always looking, always searching for that lost sheep to guide them back. Help us to be stable and steady and growing in our faith for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. May you receive all the glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.